Is it recording yet? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, uh, this is regarding to the Udana 8.3. Mm -hmm. hang, hang on a second. I want to give an announcement that this is the Sangha call for Friday evening. Uh, Sangha US. Um, what what date is this? The, It's a uh, 428. Uh, Friday evening is on the 28th. Yes, and the calendar here shows the 29th. So welcome, everybody. Um, uh, we're going to start off today with uh, Errol having a question about a sutta. Yeah, so uh, we've discussed in the past that everything is conditioned, right? Everything has a cause and effect and yes, makes, uh, great sense. There's one sutta where the Buddha in Udana, Udana 8.3, where he's like, monks, there is a unconditioned, something that is, um, pull up here. Uh, okay. There is monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned. If monks, they were not the unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, you could not know and escape here from the born, become, made, and conditioned. But because there is an unborn, uh, unbecame, unmade, unconditioned, therefore you do know an escape from the born, become, made, and conditioned. Mm -hmm. My question was, how does, how can something be unconditioned? Or I guess, what does a Buddha mean by the unconditioned here? All right. Um, when your truck is out in the sun, the sun conditions the truck to get hot. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. If you put the car in the garage, then it is unconditioned now. Will it not cool off a bit? Yes. All right. We're talking about a really ordinary thing, but the way the sutras are interpreted and, and, and transmitted, um, or translated rather, uh, it looks spooky, ethereal out of this world how could anything be unconditioned okay well when the laptop is on it's conditioned to do a whole lot of stuff but when you turn the power off maybe even take the batteries out to make sure now the laptop is unconditioned and it's going nowhere it's doing nothing all right if we can understand it like that then we can also understand that this is actually part of the practice is to come down to the state of stop doing that poking, stop carrying the load, set the load down, stop poking and poking and poking at the dukkha, and it will become unconditioned or it will settle down. This is exactly what the word Nibbana means, that in fact I would believe that if we looked at the Pali in that sutra, that one of those words, unconditioned, would have been the word Nibbana. Okay, so in fact, that's, I use the example of the car in um, the sun, uh, but in the old Pali and in the tradition in the life of the Buddha, the time was is that the word Nibbana actually had a meaning. To cool off? Yeah, to cool off. But we can say it in the sense of unconditioned that when a stranger comes into the yard, that conditions the dog and the dog is barking. When that um, conditioning goes away, when, when the guy gets afraid of the dog and runs away, 
the dog will come back and lay down on the porch and, and nap or at least keep his ear cocked while he's laying there just enjoying himself because he's not being conditioned by anything right then. So that means then that when the dog is cool, he's Nibbana. The next example out of the sutras is, is that when you take something out of the fire, it's still hot. You want to let it cool. So the fire is like in, in food, when you heat the fire up, and then you put the, um, um, <clears throat> let us say, the, the cake in the oven. There'll be a time when you have to take the cake out because it's continually being conditioned into a hotter and hotter state. And there's one point where it's delicious, and then later in that fire, it becomes charcoal. It'll burn up because it will be more and more conditioned by that fire. But when you take that food out of the, uh, uh, the stove, and set it on the windowsill like a, a, a pie. Set it on the windowsill. What does it do? It's becoming unconditioned by that fire and cooling off. All right. So the, the question, next question is, well, so what about all of this? It's just an ordinary thing. We already know that. I haven't said anything that nobody knows already. It's just the language that we're using to describe it. That's, so, that's, go ahead. Just, just add one thing here. That's awesome, then, because in uh, Udana 8.5, or sorry, 8.4, the Buddha says, for the dependent, there's agitation. For the independent, there is no agitation. When there is no agitation, there is calm. When there's calm, there's no inclining. When there's no inclining, there's no coming or going. When there's no coming or going, there's no passing away and rebirth. But there's uh -huh. no passing away or birth. There's no here or hereafter or in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. Mm -hmm. So that, that ties perfectly into that. Yes, exactly. And you can see that little pathway going down, but it's done in such stilted, out-of-this-world language. Right. That everybody who reads that, including the translator who translated out of the poly, doesn't have a clue about what they're doing there. <laughs> All right, but when we understand that it's not magical, I mean, um, the the idea also is about spontaneous birth, because in the time of the Buddha, they believed in spontaneous birth. Now we recognize, no, he was right in the first place. There is nothing spontaneous. Everything has some sort of cause or kickoff. Or conditioning and when the conditioning stops eventually the conditioning um, mellows out settles down and the fizz goes out of the coke when you so be, it's almost a like conditioning of dukkha right mm -hmm. and, the, and so if we're conditioned by our dissatisfactions with what is and so when we take our dissatisfactions out of whatever and stop conditioning reality with our dissatisfactions, then everything gets mellow. Everything becomes peaceful. We live in a paradise, a wonderful place, because it's not being conditioned by my own dissatisfactions. But we need to practice that because we're very, very excellent at conditioning. And this um, leads into then two 
two points. One is how to how to practice this knowledge, because this is so far just theoretical. How do we practice this knowledge correctly and how do we practice it incorrectly? Because Western Buddhism practices this knowledge, they know it exists, but they practice it incorrectly. And part of the reason for it is, is because they've added an extra ingredient that I'll call a clock. Which is kind of a joke. I should better say calendar. <laughs> a long calendar, by the way, <laughs> an encyclopedic long calendar. <laughs> uh, but everything really is in cycles. And so time and calendars, et cetera, repeat uh, themselves. But the reason I'm putting this in is because really everything happens in the moment. And if we practice correctly, like everything's in the moment, then we can uncondition in this moment, right here, right now. That's what our practice is, which is basically stated very quite correctly without such highfalutin language as, uh, as this in the Udana. And by the way, the Udana, I think, is the oldest of the literature. The Dhamajama Nikaya is dated as around the time of the Buddha's death, to where the Udana already existed, possibly not just as chanted material that the monks did, but also written down. And so it's actually in a, a perhaps an older language or an older Pali than what we find in the Majjhima Nikaya. And it could have been a different village or a different dialect. Okay, so there's some differences in there that many of the translators don't take into consideration. So um, we also can understand, oh, no, that's not true. The Udana is not older than the Majjhima Nikaya in the respect that the Buddha's original teaching, the, uh, the, the movement of the wheel of the Dhamma, the Dhamma Chakra Pavanta Sutta, is where the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths are actually introduced. It's almost like that was his first teaching. And that the Udana, wherever it came from, did come later. And so let's go back to that Eightfold Noble Path because that's where the secret lies as to what we're doing here. And that is, is the, uh, to first understand what is right view that's an ordinary view and a wrong view, which are both concepts. And, and the, uh, uh, the right understanding of right noble view is specifically a verb of looking, investigating, rather than having had an investigation because the noun puts it into the past, it sets it, it fixes it. But what the Buddha is talking about is in this present moment, look at what's going on. Recognize dukkha for dukkha. Now later they got into the idea of contemplating dukkha in the sense that you got to look at it for a long time. But the Buddha didn't mean it that way. He meant it, look at it right now, see it right now, and then make a change right now. And that change then is actually on the Eightfold Noble Path, but we have to remember to do this, to remember to look at what you're doing, check out that it's dissatisfying, and then make a change. And then later, he talks about it on two different occasions. One is with just this, the sati, wake up, take a look, 
and make a change. These three things run and circle around each other, building a skill set. And that making the change is always in the, uh, the beginner's realm is to sit here and look at what you're thinking and say, is that wholesome or not? And if it's not, change that thought immediately. Change our view. Change it, and in the Anapanasati Sutta, it says, gladden the mind. And in the Udana, where you're reading, it says, stop conditioning the mind with your unwholesome thoughts. And now we're going to condition it in a new way with wholesome thoughts. And eventually, once we get real control of the mind so that we can um, first take off the bad conditioning by adding good conditioning, now we can learn to take off the good conditioning, and now there's nothing left. And therefore, we're unconditioned, and then nibbana. And that happens for a good meditator who's been practicing doing this about a second, maybe two or three. But that's a skill that has to be developed. But even that meditator who can do that, 10 seconds later, he's back into dukkha again by having uh, the mind start up and starting conditioning him again. And if he can catch it, if he can remember to look again, aha, I see you, Myra, and then throw that Myra out and now become unconditioned again. And we practice this over and over and over again until we get really good at it. In fact, there's times when you can see the thoughts so clearly that they're breaking up before they get fully formed. You just start a thought, just opening your mouth, but not quite letting it out in the brain. All right. Um, and that we all have these these moments. We're not supposed to have these moments. We've got rules against these moments. One of those moments would sometimes you could use the, uh, the definition of a senior moment when the mind just goes blank. Within Buddhism, when the mind goes blank, that's, you know, <laughs> a nice state to be in. But when the Westerners are uh, on stage giving a speech and all of a sudden their mind goes blank, <laughs> they don't like that at all. <laughs> Oh, no, you got to keep that mind machine running. you got to keep that conditioning going, right? So that, that whole mentality in the West is antithetical. So this is why we need to get away and get into seclusion so that we can begin to change the conditioning that we're doing to ourselves. And so the difference then between the right practice is, is to see the dukkha immediately as dukkha that's all the contemplation that you needed is, oh, that's dukkha. Now we can go to the next step of putting in the right effort. That we saw the change. Uh, we recognized that this is dukkha. We redoubled our effort. We came back to the Eightfold Noble Path, and off we go, right? Now, this little sequence that I've just said is actually what is referred to as the 16 stages of insight within the Mahasi system. And that's where that clock comes in, the time, so that it takes five years to see the dukkha. I know people who have been practicing, so they say 50 years, and they know all about it. But they haven't actually seen the dukkha well enough to say, huh, 
I'm out of here. But in fact, this is what's referred to as the dark night of the soul. Is within the Mahasi method. Now that dark night of the soul, by the way, that phrase dark night of the soul is not part of Buddhism. It's nowhere in the text. It's in a Western, actually an American invention. And there are those who recognize the exact place that it comes from, the guy who invented it, or the guy who attached the term dark night of the soul to the actual 16 stages of insight. Because uh, once we see uh, the, the changing, the dissolution, once we begin to see the dukkha, the dissatisfaction, step six then is fear, uh, misery, disgust, despair, then a strong desire to get out of it, followed by step 11 of uh, uh, redoubling one's right effort to get back on step 12 of the Eightfold to Noble Path. Very interesting, because the whole point is, is that we can do that within about two or three seconds every time. But this is a little cycle that we go through, and yet the, uh, uh, the clock people say that that 16 stages of intake may take 50 years, it may take five years. You got to work, you got to practice, you got to do a whole lot of dukkha before you can understand it well enough to get out of it. Or at least an hour of sitting in the most uncomfortable position <laughs> you can muster up. So, I've, uh, I've done both, actually. I've, uh, I've done the year retreat, you know, for the cessation. I've also had the... Uh, John, I would then like, as I'm grabbing my phone, I just stop for a second. All of a sudden, like, you know, timelessness and spaciousness. Um, definitely like that one better. And what's interesting is in the jhana, uh, mindfulness is like unremitting, I guess, as you said. Uh, there's no, you don't have to like try to be mindful. It's just things are very clear and crisp and you're just naturally in that state. Right. You're not here. Pounding your, your head to know. All right. In fact, think about sati is like breathing. In fact, that's a very important way of the way that is phrased correctly in the Anapanasati as sati for the breathing in and out. Sati in and sati out. Now, here's the point. You're going to breathe whether you remember to breathe or not. The question, can you bring that remembrance into the breath? And the way to do that is by beginning to control the breath. That's what we were going to do anyway, is take the right effort to make a change. And so we're actually going to make that effort to make a change to the breath right then and there. And that's taking the old conditioning off and putting a new conditioning on, which takes us out of tension into relaxation for the body. So this breathing Thing happens automatically and yet some students will come back and say oh that breathing technique you gave me is so much work <laughs> and the answer to that is is that you're working that's why it's work that you're working at it just like you've worked at so much of the other stuff so if we can learn to be mindful and control while at the same time relaxing the body and the breathing then that's taken us in the right direction. But as Keyshawn 
uh, just mentioned, that is not the way that uh, we're not going to get that kind of relaxation by sitting in that meditation hall for long periods of time where the body gets really sore. I guess they have the idea that, oh, that's how you you contemplating dukkha is by sitting there long enough so that the body becomes quite painful. But that's also a really dangerous thing to do. I know a number of Westerners. I've never heard this about an Asian, and I've known more Asian monks than I have Westerners. But I know of about five different cases, including Kanti Palo, uh, Vila Maramsi. Um, <clears throat> that German monk, I've forgotten his name in Bangkok. Um, and, um, oh, Subharo who was here at Watson and Milk a few years ago, and all of them cannot, they're monks, all of them cannot sit the way that the Thai monks sit. They can't do it, it's too much pain, automatic pain. They have sat in that Mahasi method uh, for hour after hour after hour until they literally ruined their knees. And they can't sit no longer than about three or four minutes, and that's certainly not long enough to have lunch, and so they don't even want to eat with the other monks. They, in fact, in a way, withdraw from the Sangha out of pain. And then they don't want to be around the other monks because they can't sit the way that the other monks sit, but they still want to be monks. So that's a long-term danger for sitting too long in pain because you can see that conditioning went really deep. It's not what, that it was just, uh, let us say, baking their, uh, their legs into uh, a delectable deep dish. They kept it in that fire too long to where now it's burnt. They're, they burned themselves out. Their legs are no longer capable. And this is a danger of, of the conditioning. So don't condition wrongly just so that you can or let us say unwholesomely or perhaps in dukkha to add more dukkha and more dukkha so you can make sure that you can see it well enough to get out of it because in fact if you could see it as dukkha you'd get out of it right now <laughs> and so there's also by the way um uh there's a group called alcoholics anonymous it's been around um since the late 1800s and it seems to be, at least back in the 1970s, the very uh, statistically the very best method of removing alcohol uh, or, or, or getting people to change to stop drinking. But if it's a court-appointed uh, situation to where the judge says, oh, you drunk, you've got to go to AA, it doesn't work. What AA actually needs to work from is the fact that the drunk has hit what they call rock bottom. Which means finally they've seen how much of a mess they've made their lives in. Finally, they can see the dukkha and they want out. And now that desire to get out of the alcohol is what will get them out. That in fact, the AA is nothing but a kind of uh, sangha that supports them while they're getting their uh, uh, life back in shape by getting off of the alcohol. So you can see, in fact, that um, what we are is an Alcoholics Anonymous for everything, <laughs> everyone. 
every uh, uh, and not not just for everything, but for everyone. That not everyone is an alcoholic. Some of them do drugs, so they actually have a narcotics anonymous. I don't know if they have a sex fiend or a porno um, or or whatever anonymous, but they sure could use one. But here we're um, how how to say it. Uh, we use the point about anonymous, which is quite brilliant because that means that I'm not in it. There's no self there. And so that's a, um, a part of the reason why Alcoholics Anonymous works is because people can change because they're not attached to who they are. And that's part of the problem with the Mahasi method that's practiced in the West. I'm not saying that this comes from the man named Mahasi Saladal, because I think he understood it correctly. But after he died, the people who were around him were, take, were thinking about the monk that uh, um, Kishan and I have been talking about, who says, oh, you've really got to see the dukkha. Well, how much dukkha do you have to have before you can see it well enough to want out? That's the interesting question. Do you have to actually hit a rock bottom? Or maybe our rock, our bottom is very, very shallow. And so, uh, go ahead. I'll say for me, uh, in Jhana, the Duke, again, uh, it's effortless in terms of seeing it. Um, I remember I'll be driving in the highway and typically, you know, I would check my phone, but then, uh, you know, I was in Jhana and I was like, there's a slight discomfort to look away from the road. It was very subtle. And, uh, you know, I've done it hundreds of times, but I'm like, it doesn't feel good. And I can see why, because it's dangerous, right? I mean, I'm traveling <laughs> 80 miles an hour, but yeah, it was just a weird feeling. Or I remember I was walking through a crowd and I was like, I'm just gonna mind my own business, walk through this crowd, looking around at other people, uh, caused subtle stress. And immediately I just uh, let that go. And I still stayed in, in Jhana doing that. Ah, when you're in the vicinity of the ground in front of you, then that's very little conditioning. When you're in the vicinity of a whole lot of feet on that ground, you can find your way through it and all is cool. There's not much conditioning. But if you raise your eye level off of the ground and stop watching where you're going, you're going to immediately be in a world of hell beings. Unhappy people, angry people, people in a hurry, uh, people who are wanting something. And of course, you're going to feel uh, the dukkha. If we're awake, if you can, if you actually are awake to how you feel, most of the people actually don't even understand. They do this subconsciously. They walk through a group of people and they wind up feeling bad at, at the other end of it because they have become one of the hell creatures themselves. It rubs off. We're influenced. They, in fact, by being among all of those people, and we know it because we're looking at them, they're conditioning us. Isn't that interesting? There's your conditioning back to that sutra that we were talking about. So this is why the Buddha recommends guard the eye door. Look at where you're going rather than all of the scenery. Look at where even, you're going. Yeah. Even making eye contact with somebody when I was walking, 
uh, it wasn't an issue, but I realized it would require some effort. And mm -hmm. I, it's unnecessary effort as I'm walking. I could do it if there was something I needed, but I didn't need anything. And uh, I stayed, you know, just walking, minding my own business. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a very subtle little thing that you're picking up on. And so I would congratulate you, which is basically the fourth item on the list of the Eightfold Noble Path, that once you recognize that you can change because you have changed and you can see the change, you can recognize that this is no longer dukkha. That we go into a state of jubilation. Wow, no dukkha. <laughs> and so we come out of it. This is the um, the Sama Sankapa, which has to do with attitude. Then, in fact, in, in one of the things that you had read, it used the word intention. And I said, I got to make a note of that because we'll come back to it. That intention is what we're talking about. But we're not talking about it in an intention like a builder um, is intending to build a house. And therefore, he's got to go get land. He's got to go get plans. He's got to go get zoning ordinance uh, things and go through all the checkpoints and all of that. And so he's got a plan, but he's, he's doing it to intend to build a house. This is not the kind of intention that I'm talking about. Rather, the intention that I'm talking about is a pre-thought. It's a leaning. Just like um, uh, a tree, the way that it falls over is in the direction that it's leaning. Possible example of that is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now, the city of Pisa actually has spent hundreds of millions of dollars to shore up the foundation strong enough so it will leave the tower leaning because it's a world-class art or uh, tourist attraction. If they set it up correctly, they could do it far cheaper, far more stably. But then they'd lose their tourism. Who wants to watch a tower in Pisa that doesn't lean? <laughs> All right. But guess what? Think about it. Now that we know that the Tower of Pizza is there and is leaning, they shore up the foundation so that it won't fall over. What direction would it fall over? If it did fall over, which direction would it fall over? Would it fall over into the direction that it's leaning? In other words, you can see uh, this is an example. If this is leaning this way, is it more likely to fall this direction or is it more likely to fall that direction? Well, if the gravity is pulling it down this way because of the center of gravity, the obvious answer is going to fall this direction. Guess what? Our mind also leans. We've got a deeply buried kind of a worldview. And that worldview can be always done in just one sentence, one little thing. The world is dangerous. The world's a paradise. The world is somewhat dangerous. You've got to watch where you're going. Oh, no, the world's too big. You need help. So these one-liners are what our attitude is, and mostly the attitude that we have is the attitude of a victim, which means that which direction are our thoughts going to fall in 
they're going to fall in the direction of the where the mind is leaning. And so if we have the attitude or if we have the world view of the world is dangerous, we're going to go around in a state of fear. And have thoughts of dangerous things. Right? If we have uh, the, the world view that the world is disgusting, then our thoughts will be in that regard. But if we have the um, the attitude, the world view, that everything is okay, everything's hunky-dory, I'll just relax and watch the show. Then that gives us a new kind of thought system. So this is the Samasankapa. It has to do with the way that the mind leans. That's what we mean by the intention. What, what is the intention of this tree? It, its intention is to fall this way. If it's leaning in this direction, it's not going to fall that way. It has to be leaning in that direction to fall that way. And the mind is that way too. So basically, what we begin to do is with intention. We start to practice with the intention of having wholesome thoughts. And then when we have an unwholesome thought, that's because the intention was leaning in the direction of that unwholesome thought. So in fact, this leaning thing is not a permanent. Everything is, is fluid. Everything is changing until we begin to take a control of it and recognize that our original intention <laughs> was to have a wholesome thought, but now I'm having an unwholesome thought because the intention changed. But if we keep having wholesome thoughts and wholesome thoughts and wholesome thoughts, that's like shoring up the foundation so that we begin to have more um, upright intention. And because we have more uptight intention, in fact, because the, the, the tree is not being conditioned by gravity, it doesn't fall over. So that's back to that pursuta. If our intention is upright, then there will be no conditioning done. The conditioning is the thought or the feeling that we have, but it too was conditioned by our attitude. And we can eventually change that attitude about things. And the way that we change that attitude is by being very, very successful at changing our intention one time after another after other. No, I'm not going to have the intention to have unwholesome thoughts. I'm going to have the intention to have wholesome thoughts. I'm going to make the decision to come out of the dukkha, come out of um, the dissatisfaction, and intentionally, with right effort, come into the state of satisfaction. Because we're um, manufacturing a new kind of intention rather than using the old kind of intentions that kept us as a victim. We started off as a victim. I started off as a child. Did anybody here start off as a full-grown adult? No, we all start off as a tender infant. We are in the very beginning, completely dependent upon others. We're a complete victim. We're completely helpless, can't defend ourselves from anything. And then as the child grows to age three, four, and five, now he's ordered around. Oh, go pick up your toys, do your homework, this kind of stuff, all on and on. And the child remains the victim. 
the big people telling what to do. And we get into a very deep habit of being uh, run by the people around us, by our world. And then we grow up as full adults with that same mentality, that same intention. Where do we ever change that intention from being the victim, being um, uh, subject to the vagarities of the world, what they call the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and become the winner instead, to come out of that intention of being the victim into being what the Buddha referred to as the lion. Become that lion. Get your act together. Get your mojo. Get your success going so that you feel successful in your life. That in fact, if you're really, really, and we're not talking about money at all, because people think that they're going to, because they have money, that they're called successful. Most of the people with money are not successful at all. They have no relationship to feeling successful. All they've got is money. They want to be successful, and so they want more money. (laughs) But because money doesn't bring the feeling of success, it doesn't matter. You know, you can you can have all of the money. In fact, so many people are trying to get all of the money. But they don't feel successful. So they try to run other people, try to tell other people, oh, if that guy goes and does what I tell him to do, then I will be successful. No. Forcing other people to do what I want them to do does not make me feel successful, not very long. But what we need to do is to actually get some success by changing our own mind and recognize that as success. But we have to practice this over Yes, go for it, Kishan. I wasn't even going to say anything, but uh, I I did have the thought earlier that, I mean, that recognizing that you can change the mind. I mean, when you see that you you do that, it's really profound. It's like, it's like it always makes you think like Obama was really onto something. He was like, yes, we can. Mm-hmm. He won an election off of that phrase. Yes, we can. That's an attitude of a winner. It's your fault is the attitude of a loser. So you could say then that um, uh, Trump has a victim's loser's attitude. Even though he's very much in love with himself and sees everything from a selfish position, he sees himself ultimately vulnerable. He's weak. And look at all the people that are chasing him around because he hasn't been able to see Duca, not real Duca that anything that he's dissatisfied with is somebody else's fault. So that's back to being the victim again. That really one of the understandings about Dukkha is, is that, oh, it's something that I am doing. I am conditioning. I'm the conditioner here. What is that conditioning? That attitude of being the victim. And so we can practice coming out of the victim's position into the winner's position. And that's a major change in the conditioning. That in fact, uh, uh, the winner's position is kind of like just doing without the burden of the victim's position. 
that you could say having no position at all, not wanting to have a position, not even wanting to be the winner, that I talk about it like that to give the students an understanding, but the real winner doesn't care a flying rip about whether he's the winner or not, because we're talking about an attitude here, not an ego position. And this is how we become unconditioned because you can also think of conditioning is like a burden. So the donkey can go all over the place all by himself. Got marvelous footing, can go up hills and all of that kind of stuff. But donkeys don't have such sure footedness if they're laden down with pots and pans and dynamite and all kinds of baggage that uh, the, uh, the donkeys used to have to carry. When the donkey is laden down, his footing is not stable. But when we uncondition the donkey and take that um, burden off of his back, now he's sure-footed. So this is the conditioning that we're removing is that pos uh, position of being the victim because that victimhood is such a burden. We were burdened down with rules about how things are supposed to be. And we're carrying such a backpack full of conditioning that it, the world should be this way. That guy ripped me off for $100,000 and I want revenge. You ever had those kind of thoughts? Maybe it wasn't that amount of money. I'm just making it big so that it impacts you. <laughs> but we can do that with $600. Have you ever been ripped off for 600? How about $10? That happens often on the internet, I think. All right? So the conditioning that we have is the rule, he should not rip me off, which means I'm a victim. A better way of looking at that is, ha, huh, $10 is nothing. So I can uncondition, unburden, and I don't have to worry about getting revenge. If people had this mentality, I think the legal profession would <laughs> fall apart. The United States has got too many. I mean, it's very litigious, which means a huge amount of people are carrying around that uh, that victim's position of he done me wrong and I'm going to get even, even if it cost me more money than I lost. Them lawyers are greedy people. <laughs> And so that guy who is wanting to sue his relative or sue his um, um, banker or whoever, he's carrying around that rule and that conditions his mind and he feels bad. He's the victim. But if we can say, I can handle that, I can handle that loss. Yeah, so what? An example would, yeah, so what if the, uh, the North Carolina government uh, takes money out of a bank account because it hasn't been used for years. Because I lost $2,000 that way about five years ago, 10 years ago or so. But I didn't condition myself with it because I hadn't used that money in so many years that they confiscated it. So why should I feel bad now about that $2,000 when I haven't even been using that $2,000? It just poof, it was gone, and I thought it was there. How dare the United, or not the U.S., but how dare the state of North Carolina steal my money? When, in fact, they didn't think that it was mine. They thought it was an abandoned account. 
right? So this is just many examples of this idea of conditioning. And yet, why should we contemplate that as dukkha and dukkha and dukkha and dukkha and see this dukkha is connected to that dukkha and, oh, I really hate that banker and I am going to go all the way through a lawsuit and it's going to cost me $30,000 to get that $2,000 back. All right. This is the idea that we have and that we can, in fact, become unconditioned. By by changing the rule system, thou shalt not hurt me. Or I'm the victim here, guys. Give me a break. That's another kind of rule that we have, which a better rule rather than give me a break, guys. I'm a, I'm a beginner here is the attitude. I'm going to learn how to do this. That's the right attitude. Not you guys give me a a break. Oh, I need a second. Oh, I struck out. I need a third. I need a fourth strike. (laughs) Just one more round. (laughs) And unfortunately, the world doesn't work that way. But what we can do is we can accept the way things are without having to have a bunch of rules about it. Oh, I'm the batter. I should be able to hit that ball. It's just another rule. And it's not the skill of hitting the ball. What we need to do is to get out of the game or let us say change the circumstances so that the kid practices batting enough so that he was good at it. And then he doesn't need three strikes and you're out. He's going to hit that ball because he knows how to hit a ball. And so this is the way that we uh, stay in that mentality of being a victim of wanting a do over wanting a second chance, feeling bad because we failed at something we don't know how to do, when all we have to do instead is practice, practice, practice baseball, practice catching, practice throwing, practice the piano, practice the flute, whatever it is, it's practice, practice, practice. And here, with one other ingredient, we're going to practice enjoying practice. And what are we practicing? Enjoying practice. To stop uh, wallowing in and enjoying our dissatisfactions and our hurts. We've been, we're very good at that. We're well rehearsed. (laughs) We've got all of the steps and all the lines down solid. It's painful. We need to learn a new dance step. And we need to practice it over and over again. And most of the kids, when they're learning a new dance step, they don't have the thought of, oh, I screwed that up. No, we just keep going back and doing it correctly and keep doing it correctly slowly. But we can build up the speed later. So this is exactly how we practice Anapanasati too, practicing it by changing our attitude a little bit so that we can get our thoughts straight. So that that eventually then builds up to that deeper attitude that filters through everything. So we begin to stop the conditioning. We take the heat off. What is the heat? What is the burden? It's how things are supposed to be. You're supposed to already be good at things that you've never practiced. That's the conditioning. And it's a heavy one. It's quite Western too. 
The other one is, is that, oh, you haven't practiced, therefore you can't do it. And you can't practice because you can't do it. There's an old Southern joke to where mom uh, screams out the window, Johnny, get away from that wheelbarrow. You don't know nothing about machinery. Well, now in this modern generation, we don't think much about wheelbarrows being machinery. <laughs> but the whole point of it is, is that you've been told, oh, put that down. Oh, that doesn't belong to you. Oh, you shouldn't do this. And that's a part of, uh, we need permission then within ourselves as part of the attitude. The attitude is you're not supposed to do that. That's also built into that rule system that conditions our intentions or our attitude. So ultimately, if we give up all of that silabata paramasa is the Pali word for it, a better, and start living in the present moment in the reality unconditioned by our past rules, then Nibbana is within vicinity. But if we're constantly being conditioned by our own past, then we're going to stay hot. We're going to carry a burden. We've got a load here. And it's really easy to do this. This is the easiest thing I know how to do. It's to stop working. To stop working at it. To just set it down and say, oh, wow, what a good day this is. I don't have a thing to do. <laughs> Maybe talk to some friends, but other than that, it's just another day off. And that's the attitude that you can develop. You don't actually have to quit your job to have that attitude. But beginning to have the attitude that, you know, like work days and weekends. Have the attitude instead. Every day is a holiday. Uncondition it from uh, your day from uh, the conditions that you have from it. Take a day off or have the day itself be a day off. Where it's not conditioned. And it's actually holy because it's whole, it's not conditioned by thoughts about the weekend. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, well, uh, the weekend is, is a holiday. Oh, no, it's just the weekend. It might be a break, but a lot of people do a whole lot of wake, uh, thinking and working and whatnot mentally about what's going to happen on the work day on Monday. And so it really is not a day off. In fact, people take vacations, sometimes two-week vacations, and where do they go? They always think, the I, I've got to travel. They can't just take the two weeks off and actually be off and lay in bed and just, you know, chew bonbons or something like that for two weeks and, wow, just enjoy myself. Oh, no, they got to travel. They got to go to an expensive resort. And then they've got to go to the treadmill because the resort got a treadmill. They got to go to the beach because the resort's got a beach. They got to go to the uh, musical because the resort's got a musical. Whatever it is, and by the time it, by the two weeks is over, now we need a vacation from the vacation. And work sounds like a vacation now. <laughs> so, why, where is it then that we can actually find a way of becoming unconditioned? is through the relaxation. And we can practice that right now. We don't have to wallow through decades of dukkha, whether we're mindful of the dukkha or not. Dukkha is dukkha. 
And being mindful of the dukkha is not enough. You can see it, yes, but the Buddha recommends more of the Eightfold Noble Path than just seeing dukkha for dukkha's sake as for what it is. We got to make the right effort. We got to make a change here. We got to lean a different direction. So does anybody have any comments about that? I see you, Victor, you're doing a lot of smiling and nodding your head. So I think (laughs) (laughs) it's just really an awesome break. Like from the solo, it was amazing. Um, But I was actually looking up like on on Reddit, like about like Christianity and like redemptive guilt or redemptive like suffering. And because it's something so pervasive and it just really helped me sometimes just understand like the way sometimes like society actually works. So people there that are like, oh, because Christ suffered for us, so you must suffer in a way it relieves him from suffering. So it's definitely like this attitude. And, and it was just like a rabbit hole. And it was like people actually just writing that out, believing that. But it, it's, it's, it's also like very pervasive without people even being aware that it's actually like just a culture. So. Um, all that, what you were saying, just definitely just just goes against it. So it's definitely like a, it's just refreshing to just to see like the contrast, you know, because mm-hmm. otherwise it's just you're barely aware that it's mm-hmm. like a cultural aspect and it is actually it actually happens like to us. So. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> Victor, you mentioned something that uh, that that brought the thought about. Um, actually, the crucifixion. Now, the Romans invented crucifixion as to be the best way possible to demonstrate human suffering. Never mind the guy who was on the cross. His suffering is not the issue. The issue is the suffering that everybody else has when they see somebody or not a body anymore, maybe just a, uh, a skeleton, maybe some shreds of meat hanging off on it. And it's a message. The message of suffering, you do what you're told or you're going to be hanging up here like this guy. Okay, so that's the whole uh, message of it. And Christianity has nailed that down solidly. Now, the message is, is that Jesus died for your sins. And so he had to suffer really, really big and take all the suffering away. But actually what we've done instead is taking Jesus as kind of a model. We now are conditioned by that crucifix. Now, one of the things, by the way, the the joke is, is that the the Protestants, they didn't like him up on the nail to the cross. The Catholics are the ones that keep him nailed up on the cross. But the Protestants want to let him go. You know, if you take those nails out of his hands and his feet, he's buoyant. He just floats right out into the air. But them Catholics, they'll go grab that foot of Jesus and drag him back down and nail him back up to that cross, right? Because they want to use that as your model for you got to suffer. And so our culture has a whole lot of suffering built into it out of that icon of Jesus. It's part of part, uh, the question of the Protestants, everybody in the culture of Christianity has that mentality. It's, by the way, part of being the victim, ultimate victim being strung up and hung out okay and that no freedom by the way at all great pain great suffering so 
recognize that you actually nailed yourself up too. You, we condition ourselves. We feel bad. We, we get that bad feeling from the culture. It's built into the culture. Just like walking around and seeing all those people. Well, guess what? Both, many of them are, are right in that moment being conditioned by not the thought of Jesus being on the cross, but because they have been thinking in the past and they've got that conditioning or that leaning built into their Sankara or their Sankapa. And so because of that, people go around being miserable all the time when we could have a choice. We could be happy instead. We can lay in bed and eat bonbons. We don't have to chase that resort all over the place. And it's just the smallest things as well, like just some trivial things that people are just very pissed off. <laughs> like just I don't know, like the elevator, like the building I live in, like has two elevators. One of them is just broken. Like the other mm -hmm. one takes like thirty seconds more now. <laughs> and like people just kept complaining to me, like I think three different people, like oh my god, two weeks, like until they fix this. I'm like Jesus, Christ, <laughs> just an elevator. So it's, it's, it doesn't have to be even like resort or anything else. It's just, just it seems like so self-inflicted and so voluntary. It is. It's, it's all trivial. Look, look at that. In fact, exactly what we're talking about, complaining. That when we are complaining to another person, we're conditioning them. But look, we've already conditioned ourselves into complaining. We're already, the, only victims complain. A dictator doesn't complain. He just kills somebody. I mean, he just does something. He, he doesn't complain. It's the victims who complain. So recognizing that we're, if we're complaining about something, we've already conditioned ourselves into being the, uh, the victim of needing to complain. And whatever we're complaining about is not right according to our standards, rules, supposed to's. And so look how much we've got going on in there. And so here's a here's a trick for you. Whenever you open your mouth to start complaining, wake up to see I'm complaining right now. What was the conditioning that got me into that? Let me change that conditioning so that I can come out of that. Right here, right now. I can stand in the um, in the Walmart complaint department and have a great big happy smile on my face. But most of the people who are there that are returning stuff, they call it a complaint department because people are there to complain about the item. They would rather complain than just get their money back. <laughs> and so what kind of attitude would you have when you return merchandise that you don't want? Do you have to complain and feel bad or you can just get your money back? Hey, you're getting some money. Feel good <laughs> instead of feel bad because um, you were dissatisfied with the item. So this is just one example. Now we can recognize that we complain to our kids. We complain to our family. We complain to our uh, partners. We just go around complaining. Why me? Is that kind of complaining? Except that this complaining is the big one. Why me? You know, well, who? I don't have anybody around here to complain to. Maybe there's somebody up there that I complain to him about. I call it prayer. You want God to fix his plan because it's broken according to my plan. <laughs> and so 
guess what? It's a whole lot easier for you to change your own plan than to to make God change his. Or even to make the U.S. government change their plan. You can't do that. But you can change your own plan. You can change. We can change our uh, we can change that conditioning down at the basic level. That thing that happens moment by moment by moment. So this is what Sati is all about is wake up to see what's exactly happening right now, because that's the only change we can make is what's happening right now. We can't change the world. Then, in fact, it's not the world that we want to change anyway. It's our own imaginary concept of what we think the world is and what it should be based upon our own rule systems. So the world is actually, we condition the world and then we don't like the world and so we condition more and we get ourselves into a cycle of spiraling right down into feeling bad. So where can we catch, where can we stop it? Where can we see it? Because any time that we can wake up and take a look at what we're doing, we have the opportunity to change it right then, right there, to stop that conditioning. You don't have to keep looking and keep looking and keep going down the rat hole of Dukkha over and over again. You don't have to have what you would call rock bottom because rock bottom is there's nowhere else to go except up. But we can make that decision in the shallow water. We don't have to go deep down to rock bottom. We can we can get better at it than that. We don't have to be completely overwhelmed with Dukkha in order to see it. We can see, see just a tiny little of it, just a little bit, just a little dissatisfaction, and that's enough to see it, and so we can throw that out. We don't have to become completely overburdened with it. And that seems to be the Mahasi method. That's why it's got that label of dark night of the soul is because you're supposed to go through so much dukkha that you do hit rock bottom and that's where your effort comes from. No, the effort is uh, coming from the knowledge of there is no place to go now but up and you don't have to get completely miserable. Just a little bit of misery and oh, I see that and I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't have to get myself into the depths of suffering in order to get out of it. I can get out of it as soon as I see it. But I think possibly the word has to do with contemplation, that that word contemplation has gotten into Western Buddhism, perhaps through Catholicism, because in Catholicism, they do have meditations that are uh, contemplative. They even call it a contemplative existence or life or whatever like that. And the contemplations that they do are something like, oh, what is the nature of the Trinity? Well, Trinities, you know, that's just three of a kind. There's nothing to it. But they want you to contemplate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost and, and chase the, the Holy Spook all over the monastery looking to see what Dad is <laughs> doing, you know. Uh, or other contemplations like uh, the compassion of um, uh, the Mother Mary or um, anything like that. That would be the contemplation stuff. And so the Buddhists have picked up on, oh, you're supposed to contemplate Dukkha, right? Well, contemplating dukkha is not what we, we don't know. We don't want to, (laughs) 
it's it's almost like can you recognize a turd for a turd or do you have to pick it up hold it in your hand squeeze it around stir it with your finger wipe it all over the wall before you understand that this is a turd <laughs> can you see a turd from a distance and not step in it <laughs> What is contemplation of dukkha anyway? But rubbing your own shit all over the place. Take a really good cook out. We don't have to do that. We can see a turd as a turd from a distance. And when we get good, we can see the turd thoughts that we have, the unwholesome thoughts, just as they are rising. Wait a minute, I don't have to think about that. Oh, I wonder if that's a lot of like psychology as well, right? Because they're like you have to contemplate where i guess your suffering is coming from right they'll say like oh it's probably from your childhood or they'll say it's ah, now you that is right? definitely you, you got to go to the root of it yeah. it's the only yeah. way you'll i guess be free or deal with it i know i know yes in fact the psychologist they, there's a label for it it's called psychological archaeology have you ever heard of such a term where you go way back in the past. And one example of that is that the one, uh, the, sorry, the guy, he is in there because he keeps having trouble with, with everybody. Well, in our parlance, we have the word, he's an ass, asshole. So uh, he goes to the psychologist and after some time in some archeological, um, psychological archeology, span they wind up finding out that when he was four years old, he got spanked by his mommy. And the psychologist walks away. Well, we've got the root of it. We know where his asshole. You know what? His mommy gave him the spanking because he was a four year old asshole at the time. <laughs> they didn't get down to the root of it. It's earlier than that. <laughs> but it's not the point of getting to the uh, to the to the childhood um, uh event that caused it the question is is can you see the asshole in me right now and stop it come out of that hey i'm a friendly dude i'm not an asshole all the time let me make the choice and when do i make the choice when i can see that i can make a choice and then i make the choice and pretty soon by choosing to be friendly and a good guy with a smile and all of that i don't act like an asshole nearly as much as as, uh, as often as I used to. In fact, it's pretty rare that I act like an asshole, but I got that asshole right here and I can bring it up and I can just show it to everybody if I want to. I just prefer not to because I got a little control over it. <laughs> and, do, and how do we do that? It's catching that asshole, catching that complainer when it starts. And the example that I would use is go back to a department store or whatever, return an item, to the complaint department, but don't complain. And we do that, I mean, people say, well, gosh, I haven't been to Walmart in years. How can I practice that? The next time you start to complain, do it right then. I'm using Walmart as an example, but it can be your best friend. It can be the cop. It can be uh, the postman. It can be anybody that you run into. Be careful, be friendly, don't complain. Where's my mail? Why weren't you here yesterday? It's not going to get your mail to you easier tomorrow. I have an example, Demarado. Uh, 
<laughs> the dogs, by the way, are complaining right now. <laughs> He's getting my dog around. Howling. That's funny. Usually they bark. <laughs> we we have a big family here. <laughs> they're okay. they're howling. All right. Yes, they're howling. That's funny. Um, I can still hear the dog. You see, that's a message system. It passes through. The dogs hear dogs way over there howling, and so they'll howl a little bit. And now the whole island is howling for a second or two, just in various places like that. Now all the dogs are, okay, what's happening? I'm awake. I'm here now. And you see, that was a survival technique for the packs way back when. Now, now mostly in the West, the, the dogs howl because um, it's a fire truck. And then they recognize that it's a fire truck, that it's not other dogs howling. Yeah, the sound that they hear when they figure out that this is just a machine the humans came up with, then they stop howling about it. But here on this island, we've got a communication system with the dogs. Because I've listened very carefully and I can see, oh yeah, when these dogs stop howling, those dogs over there are still just howling just a little bit. And then those dogs over there are going to start howling. You know, it's amazing. It's very cold. Yeah. Uh, well, it's their conditioning system, and they condition with that communication method. It's quite natural. The pets in America are not quite that natural, but the dogs on this island, it, this is a pretty natural environment. Yeah. No, there's hardly any fences anywhere on the island. It sounds very relaxing. <laughs> So the dogs go as they please. Yeah. I so like anyway, that. you you were you were asking something. Go back to that. Oh, uh, it wasn't a question. It's more like a comment where um, I was uh, I was in Jana and somebody said something, and like it, I was like, eh, I want to say something back, right? And it's funny because I saw the the poop, right? I saw the poop. <laughs> And uh -huh. I knew I would get dirty. I knew it would take me out of John if I stroke back, right? If I strike back at this person verbally. And uh, if you complain, which was what you were about to do, I imagine. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I mean, John, I feel great, like, you know, super light. And like, am I really going to like throw this away? Away. And uh, I did. <laughs> I threw it away. And, and I was did. like, you know what? I was like, you said this, and as soon as I said it, and it's funny you mentioned the 16 stages um, of insight, because actually I never thought, uh, I never heard anybody say it that way before, but um, they all happened like within that moment where I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, I'm miserable, whatever. Now, 10 seconds later, I went back into Jhana, but it was funny that I took myself away from heaven, brought myself to hell to say this, and I was like, this was a terrible idea. <laughs> but I, you know, I felt bad. And then, you know, I apologized and uh, immediately got into like a wholesome state. But it's funny that I intentionally stepped in poop, which I don't know why I did that. <laughs> ah, because you didn't see it as poop until you actually stepped in it. And then you saw it all oh, this is poop I've just stepped in. <laughs> now, you know, after you stepped in it. But then you're not stepping in it again. So bye-bye, Victor. So um, anyway, we've been, people are starting to leave because we're uh, close to about 
an hour and 20 minutes now. But anyway, I'm glad that you this was some value to you. Um, no, thank you. Hope, this was a yes. Hope to see you more often. Likewise. Thanks, Samarada. OK, Keyshawn, do you have any parting words? Um, uh, not in particular. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, I think, with a lot of the. Uh, I guess maybe one thing is is uh, how did the Western contemplation term sort of infiltrate uh, maybe like Thai, uh, you know, I he's using Thai he, and, and he and, used that word because he's learning in English and guess where he learns his English is from the Westerners. And so he's learned he's he probably understands Pali and the Thai way correctly. But when he's talking to a Westerner in English, it's all gotten backwards because of our language and he doesn't quite understand what he's saying. That's exactly the same thing that uh, that I could see in the early days with um, Santi Caro was that he didn't quite understand Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa when he translated it into English. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa didn't know enough English to be able to correct him. And so it's still back to that issue of lost in translation. So he's heard contemplation before, and he probably doesn't really understand it. He probably is, is think, using the word contemplation when in the Thai language he would uh, refer to the word possibly as noting or seeing, recognizing. But he's using the word contemplation to, because. I think asked him to uh, define the word contemplation for me, and he. he I think he did pretty accurately use some adjectives or some sim uh, similar words, rather um, something on the, along the lines of uh, mulling over or you know thinking about base. I think thinking about was how he put it, or uh, something like that. Uh huh. Well, you can think about Duke all you want to, and still keep stepping in it. <laughs> and so the actually seeing it before you step in it is is closer but uh as you say this is this is the mahasi method and i i don't know this interaction i don't know what things were like 75 years ago but i do know that uh, uh, just like thailand has been polluted by television and and Um, polluted by television, advertisements, and a whole lot of other stuff, including with the English language. And I think that, in fact, it might have already started having uh, some uh, conditioning within Buddhism, too. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. So anyway, guys, uh, thanks for the conversations. It's been really joyful. Miguel, are you on? Are you still here? I guess not. All right. So anyway, uh, Miguel, Kishan, we'll finish the call now. See you later.
Hope everybody has abilities to stop complaining about stuff. <laughs> See you later, Domrado. Uh, let's let's see you later, Domrado. Oh, thank Miguel, you. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad to see you still here. All right. Yeah. Still here. Thank you. All right. Okay. No, bye bye. Let's end the recording and keep this call going, perhaps. Okay. Just for another minute.